What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, this is a great place to get that question answered once and for all. All you have to do is give us a call, and that number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're uh, listening or watching us outside of um, uh, North America, then you'll want to use this special number just for you, and that is 1-205-271-2985. And if you're watching us on uh, TV today, your best bet to get hold of this show is uh, our email address, and that is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Gabinski is our phone screener. Jeff Burson is handling social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see it. He'll send it to us here in the studio, and we will take it from there. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. How are you, my friend? I'm fine, thanks. How about you? Good. Very good. Uh, Interesting question here from Jeffrey, who says, Why is it considered wrong that the Virgin Mary could have consummated her marriage to Joseph with the marital act? After all, sex in marriage is holy and not a sin. Thanks, Jeffrey. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the Catholic position is not that uh, conjugal relations would have been a sin in Mary and Joseph's case. Uh, it's rather that uh, in view of the dignity of having been chosen by God to be the mother of God, mm-hmm. right? that Mary pledged herself to a particularly imminent form of sanctity, that would be appropriate for the mother of God. And, you know, Jesus himself points to the life of heaven, the eschaton, and says that in, the, in, in that state, men will neither uh, be married nor given in marriage, right? The life of the angels is one that is uh, asexual, as it were. And that there are those in this life who live in a kind of anticipation of that eschatological purity. Uh, in Matthew 19, Christ speaks of those who, as he puts it, made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. But that is not everybody's calling. It is some people's calling, but it's not everybody's calling. But when one has that gift, uh, one can live that and totally consecrate their, their their whole body and their whole life to God in that kind of special purity that is an anticipation of the life of heaven. Now, because Mary is the icon of Christian sanctity, um, it's appropriate that she have the most perfect form of consecration, that she take that on as her form of life. But she's also a mother, and so she is in the unique position of being able to model the Christian life for what we call the religious, those who have pledged themselves to the life of, of perfect chastity, but also to the married. So we can look to the Holy Family and see, yeah, both, both a parenthood and family life being modeled perfectly, but also consecrated virginity being modeled perfectly. And uh, Jeffrey, thank you so much uh, for your question. Here's an email from Barry. If God can allow evil to bring about good, why can't we? 
We do that all the time. It's different from intending evil, right? Um, so we 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 all we often make the choice to uh, say to to not intervene and prevent every conceivable evil. We often make that choice. A trivial example that I've given out in the air before. Uh, my father told me that when he was a really young boy, three or four years old, he went to his his aunt's house and she had a wood burning stove, and his mother and his aunt told him, Louis, whatever you do, don't touch the word burning stove, you will burn yourself. And he thought he was smarter than they were. And so he put his hands out and started kind of playing a game where he would get closer and closer. And they uh-huh. said, do not touch it, you will get burned. And he sort of grinned at them and got closer and closer. And then the inevitable happened. And he, he burned all the, the tips of all 10 fingers. Ooh. And uh, they could certainly have reached down and stopped him and pulled him away. Mm-hmm. But they thought it best to let him proceed the way he was doing for two reasons. One, he would learn that wood-burning stoves are hot. And two, he would learn uh, that when his mother and his aunt uh, warn him, give him fair warning, that they do so with good reason and he could learn to trust them better. Now, did they intend that my toddler father burn his fingers? Certainly not. They didn't will it. They didn't intend it. They allowed it to happen. And that's what the Catholic Church says is the case with God in respect to human evil. God does not intentionally will human evil, but he sometimes allows it to happen. Very good. Uh, Barry, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's one now from Ron. I'd like to know if the Catholic Church's position is that an unbaptized person does not have the Holy Spirit in their soul. And if yes, they do, how is this possible? Okay, thanks. I appreciate the question. So to be clear... The Catholic Church teaches that it is possible for a baptized person to also lack the Holy Spirit, mm. right? If, if we uh, commit mortal sin, then we separate that ourselves from that life of God and the soul that is, that is sanctifying grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, and that can only be restored through, through confession and penance. So just because you're baptized doesn't guarantee that you have the Spirit. And just because you're not baptized doesn't guarantee that you lack the Spirit. So look to the Old Testament. Think of all the prophets who would say, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon me, and I prophesied, saying. Right? Mm. So the Spirit of the Lord would come upon all kinds of people, uh, King David, King Saul, mm-hmm. the prophets of the Old Testament. Um, so uh, lacking baptism is not a, doesn't guarantee the absence of the Spirit in one's life. Uh, when, when the prophet Joel the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Jeremiah spoke about the outpouring of the Spirit in the last days, there were a few things that would distinguish it from the presence of the Spirit in the Old Covenant. One, it would be poured out more manifestly on all flesh, right? Um, and it would affect this, this renovation of the human heart that we call rebirth, regeneration in the Holy Spirit. Mm. And, uh, and it would come through uh, the medium of baptism primarily, right, so that we have a tangible, objective sign of where the Spirit's regenerating power can be found. But it's never been the case that God absolutely withheld the gift of his Spirit from all people unless they were water-baptized. Baptism makes us members of Christ, uh, and because of its objectivity, its visibility and tangibility, it, it, it's a basis for the corporate life of Christian community. Um, accompanied by God's Spirit. But it's not, it's not the guarantor of the Spirit's absence from everyone else under all circumstances. Ron, thanks so much uh, for your email. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones, talk with Ed in Pekin, North Dakota. Stephen, California, looks like two lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN for call to communion.
It's called The Communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Ed in Pekin, North Dakota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Ed, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh Thank you for taking my call. I, I love your show. I, I just can't believe how knowledgeable you are, and I really appreciate what you're doing. Um, I, I wanted to, it's actually a comment and a question that was towards the end of yesterday's show. And you were using the analogy of Protestants using the Bible like kind of like an owner's manual or something like that. I, I love that analogy. Uh, it, it precisely articulates my problem with the uh, 40, now 47,000 different denominations, and it, it also explains why there's 47,000, because, um, you know, everybody has things they like more or less in the Bible and things they want to emphasize and things they want to de-emphasize. So if you treat it like an owner's manual, that, that's what you're going to end up with. The problem, or, or the question, is in regards to um, doctrine, and I'm a cradle Catholic. I, I was I was born a Catholic, and I practiced Catholicism for uh, 20 years about, and it's been 40 years since I've been a practicing Catholic. Um, oh, oh, tremendous respect for the Catholics and, and, and everything, but um, my problem is, the same problem I have with the Protestants is, you know, while they treat the Bible like an owner's manual— the Catholic Church has developed their own owner's manual over 2,000 years of history and tradition, uh, you know, some of which isn't very proud tradition in history, frankly. Um, so my question is, wouldn't it be better to, to use the gift that Jesus said he would give us in John 14, 26, going to give us the Holy Spirit to guide us? on a pathway, and I know for myself, I read the Bible every day, I can read it, read the same Scripture 20 times, and, and it'll say different things to me every time. They're always, always edifying and, uh, and, and uh, you know, helpful, um, not contradictory, but um, wouldn't the Holy Spirit be a better guide than all of this man-made doctrine? Yeah, thanks. I, I really appreciate the question a lot, and uh, of course, the Catholic conviction is that the Holy Spirit does guide the Church and believers. Uh, and one of the really important ways that the Spirit guides the life of the individual believer is through the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are enumerated in the book of Isaiah, the wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, piety, fear of the Lord, that work together with uh, the virtues to help us do concrete acts of charity in our daily life. And so we believe that, as Catholics, that when when I do anything meritorious, when I love my neighbor efficaciously, when I resist temptation, when I perform an act of justice, uh, that if those things are done for the sake of the love of God, then the Spirit is at work in my life aiding me to do that. But when it comes to, say, questions of, of discerning doctrine, what does the Church teach? What are the, what are the ground rules for the Christian life? What can I say objectively about these things? Then to simply appeal to the guidance of the Holy Spirit as if there were no objective teaching of Christ about the matter, and it was something to be discerned or read off uh, simply from one's interior religious experience. Well, I mean, that's been tried uh, throughout the last 2,000 years, and it, and it leads to just the kind of subjectivism and 
and diversity of belief that that you for which you faulted Protestantism, right? So the the same people that say, well, I'm going to read the Bible and figure out what it means for me, uh, can also say, well, I'm going to read the tea leaves of my own soul and figure out what it means for me, and you 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 run into the same difficulty. Um, and it would really ignore the teaching of Jesus, I think, because when Christ sent the apostles out into the world, he said, uh, go make disciples and teach them everything I've commanded you. So there was, a, there was a determinate body of sacred tradition that Christ indicated as a deposit of faith to be faithfully taught by the apostles. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, a lot of it, not all of it, a lot of it is what we have represented in the Gospels, right? I mean, this is uh, presumably... Uh, the 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 faithful have need of this body of content, right? In the subjective, and it's not something that's simply subject to my own private interpretation or whim. You yourself pointed to your engagement with the Bible. Well, well good for you, right? Like way to go, reading the Bible. I applaud that. Um, but th- your ability to turn to this list of books, I think you quoted the Gospel of John, and say, "Well, here's the Word of God. I'm going to consult it." Well, what's necessary? antecedently for you to do that, right? Well, the church's judgment that the Gospel of John actually is part of the Bible. Right? There's a history to these books. They were compiled uh, in a, into a list called the Canon of the Bible, the list of biblical books promulgated by the church as sacred scripture. All of that presumes the authority of sacred tradition and the authority of the church to promulgate these texts. They don't come to us drop down from heaven. They don't appear to us in a vacuum. So yes, we need to be individually guided by the Holy Spirit, but there also is objective content to the Christian faith delivered by Christ to the Church with the mandate to teach authoritatively and hand it down through the centuries. Ed, we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much for your call. Then that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, perhaps you'd like to explain what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. 833-288-EWTN. Three nine eight six. Let's go now to Steve in California, watching us today on YouTube. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, gentlemen, uh, thanks for uh, taking this call, especially last night on EWTN's World Over with Raymond Royal. The papal posture uh, had. Uh, we're talking about Father Rupnik, and that's what's keeping me from becoming Catholic. Is situations like this where he's been laicized. He did the things that we will not mention here, and I don't understand that. Could you please give me some understanding or clarity how I should look at this as a non-Catholic? Yeah, sure, Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you for the question. So, um, uh, th- I'll tell you how I look at it. One of the things I notice about the faith, about the Church that Christ founded, is that when Jesus put it together, um, he picked some bad apples at the very beginning. Right, yeah. and the the worst of the apples picked by Christ was, of course, Judas. Christ knew what Judas was going to do, but he he made him one of the twelve disciples, mm-hmm. and of course, Judas betrayed the Son of God. That that's a that's a pretty big scandal right there. And Judas was out baptizing and preaching the gospel and casting out demons with the rest of the apostles, and then he he went and did this. Uh, Saint Peter, nowhere near as bad as Judas, but of course, initially he denied Christ, and then he repented of that. But then after the ascension, he kind of denied the truth of the gospel by his actions with respect to the Gentiles in Antioch, for which St. Paul had to rebuke him. So, you know, Peter did some imprudent things, to say the least, in terms of his governance of the church in Antioch. And in the, the history of 
Catholics acting badly, of clerics acting badly, of hierarchs acting badly, it's 2,000 years old. I mean, uh, Gregory Nazianzus was offered the, the, the see of Constantinople to become patriarch of Constantinople, and he didn't really want to take the job because he said, you know, there's, there's so much corruption in, in the church in Constantinople. I don't want to end up there. And, and so we, we, we find this really, it's embedded into the disciples formed by Jesus. I mean, you're never going to find sort of any strata of church life where there isn't humanity and there isn't corruption and there aren't problems. Mm-hmm. To me, what's really compelling about the Catholic faith is that in spite of the obvious humanity of its members, some of the people in the church still manage to attain pretty impressive levels of holiness, right, in spite of those difficulties. And, you know, t- t- we often look back on the saints and we, oh, aren't they wonderful and aren't they great and weren't they so heroic, and forget that in their own days, sometimes the saints were persecuted by other members of the church. Yeah. In my own diocese has as one of its patrons the Curie of Ar, St. John Vianney. And what's his story? Well, he got exiled to the hinterlands of his own diocese to the parish that nobody wanted because he was the unpopular priest with mm-hmm. the other members of the presbyterate and the bishop, right? And, and that story just gets repeated over and over and over again. And so when I became Catholic, my objective was, yeah, I don't want to be like the bad guys. I want to be like the good guys. I want to be one of the Catholics who lays hold of the means of grace, mm-hmm. truth and sanctification, and attains holiness there, there through, and recognizing that you know, the Catholic faith is a little bit like a buffet table. And um, you know, I, can, I can lead you into the dining room and say, here, is this, here are these wonderful resources to grow in holiness, but it's up to you to take advantage of them. You, you mean, if you want to go eat the saltine crackers and leave everything else on the table, I can't stop you, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, and some people go through Catholic life just eating the saltine crackers. Others go in for the whole meal, right? And that's, 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 that's the way it is. So the Church doesn't promise, never promise, that every Catholic or every priest or every pope will have good judgment or even be moral, you know? I mean, we had popes that were murderers, popes that led wars, uh, popes that kept mistresses. Um, we had 200 years in the Middle Ages with no pope becoming a saint. But then we've had a bunch of popes that were saints. Sure have. And and ultimately, you know, the church is a structure uh, that is there to facilitate our relationship to God. But it, you know, we're saved through the church, not by the church. It's Christ that saves us. It's the Spirit that saves us. It's my willing cooperation with the grace of Christ manifested to me through the church sometimes through the imperfect ministration of its of its clergy right um but ultimately it's christ that saves me and that's what i want to lay hold of steve uh, thanks so much for your call there's a, a new way of looking at things for you there appreciate that it is called communion here on ewtn natalie is a first-time caller in southern indiana listening on tri-state catholic radio hello natalie what's on your mind today um, yes, I just wanted to comment on that last call and then ask my question, but um, I love how you were kind of helping people to focus more on the saints and the people who are doing what's right instead of focusing more on what's not going right, because we can watch the news and focus on what's not going right, but sure. we have to focus on the positive. So the saints are a great example of that. I am Catholic, but I've, I've recently wondered um, if, if Jesus was killed by the Romans, then how did we, um, how, did it be, how did it come to be that um, 
that we are based now out of Rome. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So Rome in the ancient world was, as it were, the center of the universe. And uh, when the prophet Daniel wrote about the coming kingdom of God in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, he spoke of a kingdom, a mountain that would fill the earth, right? that would supersede all the other kingdoms of the world. Uh, in the 20th century, when the church established the Feast of Christ the King, it was to emphasize that, you know, Jesus is not just king of some small corner of the world, some pocket of Catholic sectarians, but of everything. Yeah. And uh, when St. Paul preached the gospel, he was at pains to note that this is not the gospel of some sect of Judaism, but it is the gospel whereby the whole world, all the Gentiles, are reconciled to the God of Abraham. And so it was very significant in divine providence that the, that the seat of the church is not Jerusalem, but Rome, which was, as it were, the, the, the political social center of the entire world. This is, this is a, the, 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 the success of the church in Rome is a powerful statement about the penetration of the gospel to the entire pagan world. And the conversion of Rome to Christianity, you know, in the, when, when Constantine became a Christian and legalized Christianity, and later um, Christianity became the, the religion of the empire, I mean, the, the early fathers who had themselves been persecuted by pagan Rome, I mean, they just thought this was the most amazing thing they'd ever seen in their life, right? That, that now the, the whole world, as it were, has come to embrace uh, Christ. That's the way they saw it. And so that's why, and, and the way, like, liturgy, I mean, the way canonically it happened was that uh, St. Peter and St. Paul evangelized in Rome and ended their lives there. And so the, the succession of Peter's ministry, that Petrine supremacy that Christ established, passes to his successors, the bishops of Rome. Very good. Uh, Natalie, thanks so much uh, for your call today. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Diana is watching us on YouTube today. This is probably one of our top five questions, pops up quite often. She says, I don't understand why can't a woman become a priest? Please explain. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So several ways to get at this. One is to point out the fact that, that Christ absolutely appreciated the dignity of women and associated them in his ministry to levels unheard of in antiquity. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, he appointed only men to be apostles and, and clergy of the new church that he was establishing. And mm-hmm. there's no precedent in 2,000 years of Christian history for women being ordained. So what's the logic behind that? Why would that be the case? Well, um, the, the priest stands in relationship to the church as a husband to a wife or a father to a family. And he figures Christ in the sacred liturgy, Christ the high priest who offered himself who is also the bridegroom to the church, the priest liturgically represents the person of Christ in that relationship. And it shouldn't be seen to indicate any kind of subordination of women, right? And in fact, the highest place in the church is reserved for the Blessed Virgin Mary, who's female, right? She's the queen of heaven. Mm. And, and of course, we celebrate women in leadership, women in power, women in authority, I mean, the network that I'm talking on right now was founded by a woman who, yes. who you know, ruled with an iron but benevolent hand, yes. right? You know, and so you could multiply examples, women that are on the International Theological Commission, the Pope's uh, top theological advisory body outside of the Vatican, um, you know, women who are heads of Catholic agencies, 
uh, of, of various descriptions, uh, but but in terms of the the, sim- the symbolic significance of the priesthood in relationship to the people of God in the liturgy, that has to be a man. Diana, thanks so much uh, for your question today. Glad you're watching us on YouTube. In a moment, we'll talk with Justin in Council Bluffs, Iowa, Margaret in New Jersey, also Vicki, a first-time caller from uh, Colorado Springs. Looks like we have two lines open right now at 833 833- 288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Call to communion right here on EWTN. Do stay with us. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. If you're listening on radio today, you can give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. If you're watching us on TV today, you can uh, shoot us an email, the address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Hey, our friends in Nebraska need to hear from you next week. Spirit Catholic Radio is airing their Carathon all next week. So if you're listening to any of their 15 stations across Nebraska or anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic radio station. Back to the phones now. Here is Justin, a first-time caller in Council Bluffs, listening online, EWTN.com. Hello, Justin. What's on your mind today, sir? Howdy. So, first of all, I want to say Happy Hobbit's Day. Ah, Happy Hobbit's Day. Thank you very much. I appreciate that enormously. (laughs) Uh, So, my question, I think, is one you're going to like. I just want your opinion on C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia compared to J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings from both a Christian and non-Christian perspective. Sure, what fun. Okay, so uh, as I'm sure you're aware, Tolkien was himself a major influence on Lewis. And when Lewis was a young man and he was struggling with whether or not to accept the doctrines of Christianity, um, Tolkien gave him a perspective on on religion and on revealed religion that that made it possible for for um for lewis to accept christianity as a young man he had always been just deeply enamored of classical myth and found it just transporting and transcendent and it took him to places that other things in life did not and yet he didn't have that response to the doctrines of christianity and tolkien suggested to lewis that christianity should be regarded as true myth and that the same way that classical myth worked on him psychologically, that the stories of Scripture could work on him in the same way, uh, with the caveat that they often describe real events. And, and that was transformative for, for Lewis. And he, he, wrote a, he wrote an essay one time on stories. Uh, what is the genre of story? In which he concluded that the, the real purpose of story is to capture in a net of successive events, something that is not itself successive, right? Mm. That these, these intimations of, of uh, well, of platonic archetypes, things like courage and goodness and love and hope and good and evil, um, that this is what's conveyed to us, these grand themes um, in the genre of story. And the, 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 the tool of narrative can bring us into contact with these transcendental realities. And so that's, that's the way that he wrote. Um, now, as you know, probably, Tolkien himself hated the Chronicles of Narnia. He hated it because he thought that, that the fiction was hackneyed 
and and the characters and the tropes and the myths were ad hoc. And the fact that Lewis could mix um, satires and Father Christmas in the same story <laughs> would just just drove Tol- Tolkien mad. Tolkien, who was so careful about detailing, uh, you know, world building and creating an entirely internally consistent mythology, and Lewis seemed to be cavalier about that aspect, and it bothered Tolkien enormously. Lewis had a very high regard for Tolkien's artistic prowess and, in fact, recommended, nominated Tolkien for the Nobel Prize in Literature. Right? So that's how highly Lewis regarded Tolkien. And Tolkien actually did not like the Chronicles of Narnia. Hmm. Now, I, of course, am a, I'm just a diehard fan of both. I love Narnia, and I absolutely adore um, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. But when it comes to... Uh, my own relationship to the text as a Christian and the effect that they had on my developing spirituality, hands down, no doubt, Narnia had a far deeper influence on me. And, and uh, a lot of reasons for that, but you know, I grew up in a fundamentalist community that regarded the Bible not only as the rule of faith, but as pretty much the uh, the, 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 the one solid set of propositions that, from which you could derive a comprehensive account of reality, not just Christian faith, but, but the universe. Mm. So, uh, you know, questions about morality, even questions about things like geology and physics uh, had to be grounded in the express words, the denotative sense of the biblical text, pure fundamentalism. And so the way I was taught to think about the moral life was if the Bible commands it, you have to do it. If the Bible forbids it, you can't do it. And if the Bible is silent, it's morally neutral, right? And that's a very sort of denatured view of the moral life. And, uh, and it, it doesn't give full account to the necessity for the virtue of prudence um, or suggest that there's anything in nature that we could discern about the good and the bad, right? It's just something that I derive from a text and not from my lived, engaged experience with reality. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, um, in the Catholic tradition— in the classical tradition and the pagan tradition, um, good and evil are things that that are well. Good in particular is the foundation of reality, right? That 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 being as such is good, and so say Plato's vision of uh, of the transcendentals, and that not only through story but through dialectic and through engagement and the warp and woof of human life, that I can have these intimations of immortality that Wordsworth would eventually write about. Um, gives us real insight into the moral life, the spiritual life, and the, and the, and the ultimate truth about metaphysics and, and being. And, uh, and so it's not just the Bible alone. It's, it's all of reality. The world is a ladder ascending to God, writes Bonaventure. And when Lewis took up the Chronicles of Narnia, he very much intended to, to evoke that kind of awareness of the world, right? Um, he, wanted to, uh, he wanted to write a world where things like justice and truth, beauty and goodness, courage and faithfulness um, would seem to you to be not just ideals that, that humans construct, but that they constitute the deep structure, the fabric of reality, what Lewis would call the deep magic in the Chronicles of Narnia, and that our approach to these things is asymptotic, you know, that we grow ever closer and closer, but maybe never quite reach mm. uh, this full embrace of these of these transcendental qualities, and that 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 asymptotic approach, that yearning to go deeper and further in, 
characterizes not only this life, but the life of eternity. And so when you get to the end of the last battle and, and the children pass beyond Narnia into the Narnia within Narnia, ah. you know, going through the center of the onion, yes. and they realize that each layer of the onion is only deeper and richer than the one before it. And the unicorn cries out further up and further in, and they pass beyond all, all, all knowledge, all kin to, to that which eye has not seen and ear hasn't heard and what has never entered into the heart of man to where the real story begins. Lewis is evoking uh, Gregory of Nyssa, doctor of the church, uh, Gregory of Nyssa's doctrine of epictasis, this, this view of the afterlife that's this, uh, this ever-progressing, ever-ascending, ever-accelerating, uh, but never-quite-finished engagement into the being and nature of God himself. And it's just, it, it, it's shot through with, with philosophical themes and religious themes that are written in a way that's not meant to only to teach, but to evoke the realities that it describes. And so encountering Lewis as a young man awakened my moral imagination to the possibility of a view of the spiritual life and the moral life that was infinitely richer than what I had received in, in fundamentalism. And, and while I've always loved Tolkien, and I appreciate the narrative tremendously and understand the Catholic themes, mm. there's there something about Lewis that, that evoked that transcendental wonder in me to a degree that that uh, that Tolkien did not. And so even though I recognize Tolkien's criticism of Lewis as somewhat hackneyed and ad hoc, um, you know, if you if you said, I'm dropping you on the desert island, Dave, and you have to show <laughs> up either with the works of Lewis or Tolkien, it would be Lewis for me. Well, there you go. Justin, great question. Thanks so much for checking in with us today. It's called to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Margaret now. Margaret is in Trenton, New Jersey, listening on the great domestic I, I church media. Add, I should add one yes, last thing on Lewis. Yes. All right. I was confirmed and came into the Catholic Church on the feast day of St. Lucy of Narnia. Ah. And I'm not making that up. That's true. There is a there is there a There really is a St. Lucy of Narnia. How and about I, that? And I came into the church on her feast day. Margaret in Trenton, New Jersey. What's on your mind today, Margaret? Yes, uh, I've just started listening to Catholic radio last week and Catholic TV this past year. But last week you had a lady calling in saying she is hearing a lot on the Catholic programs that the tribulation is going to start soon. And you essentially said that you don't like to listen to end time, I don't know, people or something, but I would really like to know what the Catholic faith says about the tribulation um, and what you know about the situation. Are there a large number of Catholics uh, concerned about this sure. or believing it's going sure. to happen? Yeah, I appreciate it. So in the New Testament, St. Paul wrote, and so this is 2,000 years ago, he yeah. wrote and described the Christian people as those upon whom the end of the ages has come. And so the, the sense that Christ will return soon, that Christ will return imminently, is not something that is of recent uh, 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 fact in Catholic life. This has is, this is characterized the condition of the people of God for 2,000 years. Um, and the Church does teach that Christ will come again, and that, that, uh, that the world will be racked with pains and sorrows and wars and rumors of wars will occur before that time. But in terms of setting a date and, and discerning, say, in, in geopolitical events, um, conditions that presage the immediate return of Christ, Jesus himself said, no one knows the day or the hour. 
And the remarks that I made in the last week or so about this topic, about my not liking to listen to it, it's more than I don't like to listen to it. It's that I've, I've, I've studied the issue at length. I've, I've looked at church history for 2,000 years, and I've seen that every time anyone has ever done this, has ever tried to read the sign of the times and say, yes, I know that the Lord is going to come back, say, you know, tomorrow or next week or next year. Well, they've obviously all been wrong. Yeah. Right? They've all been wrong. And the best you can say is we're closer now than we've ever been. But that's always been the case. It's always been the case that we're closer than we've ever been. And when people give them th- themselves up to this kind of apocalyptic furor, it, it typically draws them away from the real work of the Christian life, which is to get out into the world, not to shun it, and to become salt and light and to manifest the love and the justice and the presence of God in the world. So it's a, it's a very regressive, reactionary way of being a Christian. To your question, are there lots of Catholics that do it anyway? Well, the really important Catholics don't, right? So if you ask, you know, is this how the Pope thinks? No. Is this how the bishops think? No. Right? The, the leaders of the church are not engaged in this kind of apocalyptic imagining. It's often disaffected Catholics who are unhappy with the hierarchy for one reason or another, <clears throat> who try to set themselves up as a sect apart and, and claim for themselves a kind of elect identity. That we few who have the truth, we're the real Illuminati, and they'll tell you, don't listen to the Pope and don't listen to the church hierarchy. Listen to us, our seers, our mystics, our intuition are what you should follow. And, uh, and, and it's telling that they often make these claims in direct opposition to the hierarchy established by Jesus, mm. right? And so it's a, it's a dangerous tendency. There are, I mean, I'm sure there's not a small number of Catholics at any given period of time who, who think they know better than the Church and better than the prophecy of Christ, that no one knows the day and the hour, and they're, they're going to continue to try to set dates. Uh, but it's not the mainstream position, never has been, and it's certainly not the official line of the Catholic Church. So, so uh, I, would, I would counsel people to have nothing to do with it. And look, if the Lord comes back next week and Great Tribulation is unleashed, it won't be because the apocalyptic mystics said so. It'll be because that's the time the Lord decided. Sure. Right? But we should always be ready for the end. And, you know, I've said before, uh, your your end is going to come within the next 80 years, whoever you are. That's right. Ish, you know. Yep. Uh, 120 at the absolute outset. Yeah. Margaret, is that helpful for you? Yes, thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much uh, for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let me tell you about one of our wonderful weekend programs that we bring you each and every weekend on EWTN Radio, and that is Women Made New. You can hear that Saturdays at noon Eastern on EWTN Radio. It's real talk from Kristalina Everett and her guests on Catholic marriage and family here in the 21st century. Also, the book, Women Made New, Reflections of Adversity, Transformation, and Healing, is now available at EWTNRC.com. You may want to go check that new book out. Women Made New, Reflections of Adversity, Transformation, and Healing by Kristalina Everett. Do check it out, EWTNRC.com. All right, back to the phones now. Here is Vicki, a first-time caller in Colorado Springs, listening on her Alexa device. Vicki, what's on your mind today? Hi. Um, first of all, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, um, my question is, 
does baptism wash away all sins when you're baptized? Because I read about this king who waited and had a priest uh, following him around because he knew he was going to sin, and so he didn't want to get baptized till I guess, he was on his deathbed. And so I was wondering if it washed away all sins, even mortal sin. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Yes, baptism remits all the, the guilt of all sin, uh, original sin, actual sin, mortal sin, venial sin. It does not, however, eliminate uh, the wounds of original sin, like concupiscence. So just because you've been baptized does not eliminate the tendency to sin, but mm. it does remit the actual guilt of sin. All right, very good. And uh, Vicki, thanks so much for your call today here on Call to Communion. Margaret is a calling from New Jersey, listening on the great domestic church media. Margaret, what's on your mind today? Thank you very much. Um, I just want to say I've been a lifelong Catholic. I'm in my 60s now. I um, Some questions about the faith have become significant to me, and so I appreciate your time. The question having to do with the crucifixion as the perfect atonement for the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Once that crucifixion, that atonement happened, why weren't the children of the apostles and other believers born without original sin? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So we need to distinguish the redemption that Christ accomplished objectively on the cross from the application of that redemption subjectively to the soul. We might draw this analogy. Imagine that uh, there is an infectious disease and uh, you know one of the major pharmaceutical companies comes up with the perfect pharmacological regime to cure the disease. Take as directed. You know, take this pill in the morning and at night with food, you know, twice a day yeah. for 10 days, and we will it will infallibly cure the disease. Well, designing the drug, as it were, is the objective solution to the problem. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't do the work unless you subjectively appropriate the pharmacology according, you know, as directed. Mm -hmm. And something similar goes on with the death of Christ, that the death of Christ objectively accomplishes the redemption of the world, but it yet remains to be applied to the individual soul. And it is not applied through the medium of physical birth, but of rebirth through baptism in the Holy Spirit, and then deepened and nourished through the practices of the Christian life. So that's why. Okay, there you go. And Margaret, thanks so much uh, for your call. Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio and Television. Let's go now to Lynn, a first-time caller in Dublin, Ohio, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey there, Lynn, what's on your mind today? Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. Mm -hmm. There is terminology that says that Jesus was Mary's firstborn son. So does that mean, which I do not believe, that she had other children, and why is it worded that way? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the reason it's worded that way is because in Hebrew law, the status of being the child that first exited the womb had religious significance, and there were particular rites of purification in Jewish law, in Hebrew law, that women had to undergo after the first birth. That would be the case whether they ever had any subsequent children or not. So whoever, whoever opens the womb 
at that time, the, the woman would be subject to these rites of purification, and that person would have a particular legal status. That child would have a particular legal status. So uh, particularly in societies that practice primogeniture, if the firstborn gets most of the goods, you know, mm, that sort yeah. of thing, um, he, he's going to have the status of firstborn whether he has siblings or not. And so that the terminology there is a technical terminology doesn't indicate that Mary had other children, which, of course, she did not because she was perpetually virgin. Well, there you go. And Lynn, thank you <clears throat> so much for your call today. It's called a communion on EWTN. And uh, Tom is watching us today in, uh, let's see, doesn't say where, but he's watching us on YouTube. Tom says, Catholics emphasize the love of God and neighbor, and yet they resist proselytizing. But isn't sharing the gospel a major form of loving one's neighbor? I appreciate the question. However, you seem to be conflating proselytizing and sharing the gospel, and I think the two are very, 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 very different. Mm. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, so before I was Catholic, I belonged to a different religious communion that practiced uh, uh, proselytizing, meaning that we were told that it was our moral duty, our religious duty, to go out and get people to pray to receive Christ and to, and to come into our version of the Christian faith. And almost any means necessary were acceptable. And mm -hmm. so I have specific memories of, quote-unquote, sharing the gospel with people, which meant, you know, lining up arguments in Bible verses in order to get them tied up in a rhetorical knot and, uh, and feigning personal concern and compassion, when in fact I knew little about them and cared even less for them. But my goal was, you know, to get that feather in my cap of having, you know, hopefully converted even a Catholic, which I did one time, to my evangelical religion. Mm -hmm. Now, I would say that in doing that, I wasn't sharing the gospel at all. Not only was the doctrine that I shared false, right, yeah. but even if it had been true doctrine, my objective here wasn't really to reconcile a soul to God. Even even if that happened, my objective was to was to rhetorically win, right? To yes. to get a feather in my cap and to make a kind of spiritual conquest of another soul. And I contrast that to the attitude of Jesus, who seems to have been remarkably unfazed by his failure to convert people. Many times in the Gospels, where Christ would preach a message. And it was basically, whosoever will, will come. And he was perfectly content to have people walk away. Um, and, um, and he didn't try to twist their arm or coerce them in any way at all. Right? The, the goal was to manifest the goodness, the love, and the mercy, and the righteousness of God. And leave the question of the conversion of souls up to the agency of the Holy Spirit. I remember reading a story once moved me profoundly about Mother Teresa. Uh, who pulled a dying woman off the streets of India, Hindu woman, who was in really bad shape physically and dying, but also eaten up with bitterness because her son had left her in that pitiable condition. And Mother Teresa discerned that the woman's greatest pain, her greatest suffering, was this lack of forgiveness towards her son. Uh, she could have proselytized. She could have browbeaten the poor woman into becoming a Catholic. But what she did instead was lovingly encourage her to forgive her son. Yeah, and and in the belief that ultimately it's the it's the it's that softening of the heart in charity that is the ultimate end of the gospel after all, right? Not it, it's it's more about the reality than it is about the names, and so she was content to let the woman die a Hindu, in the belief that helping her to actually come to an attitude of forgiveness 
was the most Christian thing she could do. Now, of course, that example of charity by Mother Teresa won many converts to the Catholic faith. And so, so it, it, it do, to, to do that is not to work at cross-purposes with conversion, right? It is, it's to really manifest the ultimate reason for conversion, which is to be conformed to the image of Christ in charity. Mm. Th- Tom, thanks so much for watching us on YouTube today. Here's a question now from uh, Scott, an email that says, I understand that sincere repentance will earn me salvation. However, for much of my earthly life, I have had this in mind while I have been sinning thinking that eh, as long as I repent before I die, it's all good. So my question now is, will there be any consequences for this attitude all those years? Appreciate the question. So it's, it's um, you know, to repent and turn to God means that you want the good that God is, mm-hmm. right? M- more than, you know, I, I want to guarantee that I have the proper fire insurance. Do I want the good that God is? Do I really want to reorient my life around the good that God is? And if you don't do that, you're not really repenting. I mean, love of God means that you love what God loves. Sure. Right? And so if it's, a, if it's just a verbal, just a notional repentance, I'm just, I'm just parroting the words, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. thinking that this is a magic formula that will s- save me from the consequences of my acts, then that's not genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is the desire to not sin again. Doesn't mean you won't, yeah. but you at least have the, the disposition, the desire not to sin again, right? Now, what if you never arrive at that desire until the last moments of your life? Will that make a difference to your spiritual state? Of course, because you will have lived most of your life not loving the good that God is, and that, mm-hmm. that will be time wasted and relationships burned and opportunities lost and, and merit not acquired. It doesn't mean you'll go to hell, yeah. but you will have lived a less human life and, you, and will have a less fulfilling afterlife. Mm. And it's certainly good that Scott has sort of uh, come to his senses, as it were. That's true. All right. Uh, Scott, thank you so much uh, for your email, and that is going to do that. Dr. David Anders, thank you, my friend. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast with an encore of that same show at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. You can always check out the podcast anytime that you wish by going to EWTN.com, click on uh, radio, and then when you see the word podcast, that's where you want to go. We have those in alphabetical order. Scroll down a little bit. You'll find Call to Communion. And uh, I, I certainly recommend it, especially if maybe you didn't understand everything that was said on today's program and you're thinking, maybe I need to hear that again. The podcast is just for you. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. We will see you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day and God bless.